0: Thank you for our time together now, we pray that you would help us to use it well, and that you would just grow our confidence in this great gospel of John, in Jesus' name, Amen. Now you might think this is a rather odd question, can we trust John? Because of course we can trust John's gospel, it's it's in the Bible. It's written by a friend of Jesus, or so it's claimed, perhaps even his closest friend, the one Jesus loved. And uh, it's a fantastic source for all those who want to know him better. And countless millions down the centuries have testified to the fact that their lives have been changed by this gospel in particular. And some of you have been talking to me over the last few days and saying that uh, for you, John is your favorite gospel. And it's been a sort of center of gravity in a way for you. And it's certainly true and we mustn't forget it. And in fact, one of the best pieces of advice given to me as a young undergraduate at university, um, I I did two years of classics uh, uh, in my degree and then I changed and did two years of theology and all my friends were very worried about me and they were right to be worried about me. And uh, David Fletcher was the rector of St. Ebbs in Oxford and uh, he mentored me for a number of years, in fact. And uh, I was... I think probably being a bit foolhardy and naive about what I was letting myself in for. Um, Doing a theology degree at Oxford, which basically in many ways is an archetypal, liberal, enlightenment, modernist, humanist approach to theology uh, in the theology faculty. And so a lot of friends were right uh, to be worried about me. But David said this to me just as I was uh, changing course. And he said this, never lose a vision for seeing the Bible change people. That will always remind you it's no ordinary book. And it was brilliant advice because, of course, one is being bombarded by lots and lots of very difficult, sometimes complicated theological questions and historical questions about the Bible, and some of which are questions that actually perhaps we'll never in our lifetimes find an answer, not in this life at any rate. And one's got to live with some of these sort of tensions and questions. But we mustn't lose sight of seeing the Bible change people and in particular John's gospel changing people to keep reminding us that actually this is, no, it is not possible to reduce this book to just this or that. And so we come to John and uh, it is a wonderful book, it is an uh, awe-inspiring book and hopefully just in the last few days uh, we've been reminded of that a little bit and had our taste uh, for it. Uh, sort of grown. But uh, the purpose of this sort of hour we have together is just to think about some of the questions uh, and I think answers to how we deal with some of the problems of John. And it's occasionally the case that people we're talking to in in evangelistic conversations or whatever will fling things out at us if they've done a little bit of reading. And it's the classic example of a little knowledge being a dangerous thing. A little bit of reading... Means that people actually sort of jump on a number of problems, so called, with John, and we're sort of left rather floundering. Well, I want to hope, well, I hope that by the end of this hour, uh, we won't be floundering. We'll have some things to say uh, to, to, to deal with them. But before we can do that, we actually got to think about what the problems are. And, um, and there are some problems, there are some genuine problems with John. Okay, please, everything I'm going to say, I want you to bear in mind what I said about what David Fletcher had told me. All right, I passionately believe that the Bible changes people's lives, and that therefore it is no ordinary book. That is the context into which we're thinking. But uh, we've talked about, haven't we already, how different John is from the other three Gospels, the so-called synoptics. They see with one eye. John sees with a different eye. Of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have sort of differences between them, and that's a fascinating study to see why they've made little distinctions and differences. But John is so different. So why? Well, for a start, they have different stories. If you think about it, basically, um, uh, the... uh Uh, The synoptics have a number of stories that are definitely not to be found in John. So Jesus gets baptized in the synoptics. He doesn't in John. Uh, You have the transfiguration in the synoptics. You don't have that in John. There are no exorcisms in John. There are plenty in the other Gospels. You know, casting out demons, you don't get that in John. So that's a bit odd. But this is probably the oddest of all. In John, there is no Last Supper. Don't know whether you've noticed that before. In place of the Last Supper, you have the washing of the feet. Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend a lot of time doing the Last Supper, and we make that a big focus of our community life as a church, don't we? We celebrate communion. John doesn't include it, which is very odd. If it was so important, why did he leave it out? And then turn it the other way around. Think of all the things that are in John that you don't find elsewhere. So uh, basically, you have the water into wine uh, sign or miracle. You don't get that in the others. Maybe it's a bit too minor, a bit too private. Uh, you have the raising of Lazarus in John. Now, there are one or two other raisings from the dead in the other Gospels. But Lazarus seems to have been a close family friend of Jesus'. Very significant for Jesus and his sort of community. So why don't the other Gospels have that? And then you have perhaps one of the most striking things about John's gospel, and we've spent a lot of time thinking about them, the I am sayings. They are so important, and they're they're so rich, aren't they, in terms of what the Bible means and what Jesus is claiming. But there's no hint of them in the other gospels. Don't you think that's odd? Why does John have them and the others don't? So you're left sort of at least wondering, well, did Jesus actually say them, or is John making this up? And there are certainly people who would accuse John of doing just that. Then there is the issue of Jesus himself. Some have accused John of making Jesus seem too unhuman. He's too divine. Remember we thought about a Christology from above as opposed to a Christology from below. John starts with Jesus as divine, the word, the Christ. And he doesn't seem so human. Well, I actually touched on that, didn't we? Looked at yesterday briefly. Um... Uh, but uh, sometimes it seems a bit more unreal, doesn't it? I don't know whether you feel that. Sometimes, I sometimes find that, um, that Mark's gospel seems a bit more sort of punchy and real, and, and John is a bit sort of floaty in the cloudsy a bit. Do you know what I mean? So there are different stories. Then, secondly, there are different chronologies. Now, this is where some of the, the bigger problems lie. When you start digging around, you find that. Um, Things are in a different order. So one famous one is the cleansing of the temple. Now, you would think that Jesus coming into the temple of Jerusalem, which is the sort of world HQ of Judaism, coming in, turning over tables, shouting at people. Uh, Luke tells us he prepared the night before a whip to start whipping people out of the temple. I mean, there's, a, some, there's an extraordinary sort of idea of Jesus preparing a whip, isn't there? And and you would think that that is rightly the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back. At the end of Jesus' life, this is the last straw. No wonder they arrest him and crucify him within days of him doing that. So in Mark's Gospel, and indeed in Matthew and Luke, you have it at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's the sort of final straw. And that leads to the crucifixion. And actually, after the provocation of the triumphal entry, do you remember when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey? In Mark 11, he sets out deliberately for the temple. Immediately, as soon as he comes to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. Now, uh, as the way Mark tells it, it's clear. He's deliberately fulfilling prophecy. Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. What will the Lord do at his coming? The Lord will come to his temple. And be a refiner's fire. And Mark is saying that's what Jesus is doing. The problem is, in John, it's at the beginning. It's at the Passover, but it's in John chapter 2. And in fact, we know that this isn't, um, you know, just sort of time compressed. We're told that actually this was the first of three Passovers that happened during Jesus' ministry. So it seems as if there's a contradiction, doesn't there? There's a bit of a problem there. How do you solve that? Mark, Matthew, and Luke are saying it's at the end. John is saying it's at the beginning. Hmm. And then what about Peter's confession in Mark? Remember the great turning point of Mark's gospel? Mark chapter 8 and the parallels in the other gospels. A massive turning point you know the disciples are gathered with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi right up in the north and uh, they're just chatting about this that and the other and uh, Jesus uh, saying you know so what's the word on the street what what are people saying about me out there oh you know some people say you're Elijah some people say you're a prophet and blah 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 all these different options no doubt there are a few other more wacky ideas well, who do you say? It's interesting in Mark 8, it's you plural. Who do you plural say, say I am? Well, Peter launches in and say, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And it's as if this is a massive turning point, the hinge of Mark's gospel. Immediately after that point, Jesus tells them about his death, which of course the disciples can't handle because Christ should not get crucified. No wonder they couldn't handle it. So it's a momentous occasion. But the problem is, in John's gospel, you've got people saying, we found the Christ from day one. We saw that the other day, didn't we? In John chapter one, verse 41. Just have a look at that. Uh, Do turn to their Bibles in the chairs. Uh, I mentioned this the other day. John chapter one, verse 41. Andrew goes to find his brother, Simon, and he tells him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ, the anointed one, the king. And what does he do? We found the Christ. What does he do? Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Well, that's funny, isn't it? <laughs> so when was he recognized as the Christ? John seems to be saying it's at the beginning. Mark, Matthew, and Luke seem to be saying it's a sort of turning point. Is there a contradiction there? Well, don't panic. I don't think there is actually. We'll come to it, um, and, and we can go further. We can talk about, you know, the fact that Jesus is divine from the beginning, which doesn't seem to be how he's presented in the other gospels. Is that the rector? <laughs> don't know who does. Anyway, um, another question is: When did actually Jesus? When did Jesus actually die? And when did the meeting in the upper room happen? Um, is it in or before the fast Passover meal? Now, that may seem rather peculiar, but just turn with me to John 13. I'm not going to spend all the time on the problems. Don't panic. But we've just got to lay it out before we can uh, deal with them. So, chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Okay, so just before the Passover feast, this is the beginning of the so-called Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus teaches extensively uh, in the Upper Room. In chapter 18, verse 28, then the Jews led Jesus, this is his arrest, from Caiaphas, the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was the early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. All right, so it's before they're going to eat the Passover feast. And that's why they don't want to get unclean by going into the Roman governor's palace. And then chapter 19, verse 31 now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So the idea is we don't want to have uh, people hanging on crosses during the Passover Sabbath. Well, that's all well and good. The problem is when you look in Luke and Mark, you find that they actually have the Passover meal during the Passover on the Thursday night. And that's apparently a bit of a problem. John says that Jesus is arrested and taken to Pilate before the Jews had eaten the feast, presumably on Friday night. Luke says they had the feast on the Thursday night. And that's why Jesus was celebrating with his disciples on the Thursday night. Do you see why people see that there's a bit of a problem there? Okay, one more aspect to this, and then we'll start thinking about how we put the bits back together again. So we've seen different uh, stories, different chronologies, but there's also the fact of different teaching styles and content. I mean, one of the things that is immediately obvious when you first encounter it is how um, uh, different uh, the way Jesus seems to speak in John in Mark and Luke, there's a huge amount about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it. It's absolutely central to Jesus' teaching. You know, he's always talking about how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or uh, some bridesmaids before a, a wedding or a man who went to sow in a meadow. You know, all this sort of stuff. But not in John. In fact, the concept of the kingdom of God is only mentioned in the conversation with Nicodemus. That's all. So just twice in John 3, never again in the gospel. So it's just in passing. So it's a bit odd, isn't it, to find it so central to Jesus' teaching in the synoptics, but hardly mentioned at all in John. Of course, Jesus does say to Pilate, doesn't he, in John 18, that his kingdom is not of this world. But that's about it. To add to this, the teaching styles are so different. There, there are no punchy parables in John. And at least, you know, all three synoptics have, have a few parables. Luke is the big sort of parable gospel. But all the, th- the other, Matthew and Mark, they have a few parables too. But John has these long speeches, discourses as they're sometimes called. And, and the conversations he has slip into discourses very easily. You know, it starts with a sort of you know, conversation, asking the time of day, and then suddenly you're talking about big things, about being born again and stuff. And sometimes, I don't know whether you've spotted this, just turn back to John 3. Sometimes you can't tell who is speaking, whether it's Jesus speaking or John writing his gospel. One of the problems with Greek, and incidentally on the screen is one of the earliest Uh, fragments of John's gospel so it's within about um, just a few decades of John writing it so very very early indeed one of the problems with Greek is it doesn't have punctuation so there are no full stops no inverted commas nothing like that and so sometimes it's actually quite tricky to work out when somebody stops talking and when the narrator starts narrating and um, But you see in John, in Mark, it's usually completely obvious because the style is so different from the speaker and the narrator. In John, you can't actually tell. So in John 3, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, you can't tell when Jesus is talking or when John is writing. So to begin with, it's all clear he's having this conversation with Nicodemus. How can this be, verse 9 of John 3? You're Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. Blah, 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 blah. Now, should Jesus' speech stop in verse 15? Or as the NIV puts it, verse 21. It's obvious that verse 22, do you see that in John 3, is beginning narrative again. After this, Jesus and his disciples, blah, 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 blah. So that's obviously not speech. But for instance, the classic favorite verse that you see on railway stations and everywhere, John 3.16, is Jesus saying that or is John saying that? You can't tell. And one of the interesting things about this is that basically it's as if the style of Jesus speaking and John writing has been flattened so that they're the same. Do you see? So this leads some uh, commentators to say, well, of course, yeah, John is making it all up. He's saying that Jesus didn't say any of it. It's so different from the style of the Gospels, the other Gospels. You know, that's much more, you know, people will say, oh, well, Mark is much more like how Jesus taught. And John is writing much later. He can't have remembered it anyway. He must have made this all up. That's why actually you can't tell whether it's Jesus talking or John talking. Do you see the problem? So the inverted commas at the end of verse 22, that's uh, verse 21. That is a modern translation trying to make sense of it. Perfectly legitimate. And the NRV has taken the decision, and for legitimate reasons, that it should stop at verse 21. But, but actually it's not as straightforward as you might think. Do you see what I'm getting at? Are there any questions about that? Do feel free to throw things at me apart from tomatoes. Um, is that making sense so far? Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, some versions definitely do stop the conversation at verse 15. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember which, but there, there is definitely a mixed opinion there. And personally, I don't have a problem with the narrative starting at verse 16 at all, because this is John doing what he often does, explaining the wider context of what's going on, especially because... Yeah, I I have a big problem with red-letter Bibles. Um, I think they should be thrown out of the window. Um, (laughs) uh, But even then, you see, they don't necessarily know when to stop and start red red letters. It's exactly the same problem. But you see, it's interesting, you know, verse 19 sounds just like the prologue, doesn't it? But I don't have a problem with Jesus saying it. I mean, of course, if Jesus said it, great. And I'm very happy to keep the inverted commas where they are. I don't want this to become a problem, but I'm just trying to illustrate some of the difficulties in trying to work out what's going on here. All right? Okay. Don't panic. It's all going to be sorted. Okay. So what do we do? Well, I want to take a number of these things, and I think this is exciting, because I think there are many things that we can say, and that you find a lot of sort of biases and prejudices against John coming out in a lot of commentators that are just needless, to be frank. And it's very interesting, having started as a, doing classics, um, and you know, that was even more sort of obscure sometimes, really, when we was dealing with sort of texts that were, you know, we only have two or three copies from a thousand years, After they were written compared to the Bible when we've got zillions of copies and fragments within years decades of when they were written quite apart from the fact that actually whole ideas are built on very flimsy evidence in classical uh, studies uh, compared to the vast swathe of evidence that theological studies can be based on and yet uh, you know I, I, I remember that classics professors were scathing about theologians because they would, they would be utterly scathing about their methods as being completely um, inconsistent. And very often, because theology matters much more than classics does, there are lots of agendas swirling around. Um, but it was fascinating that they, they tended to, to look down on the theology faculty at Oxford quite con- massively because they, they were just not rigorous in their scholarly methods. Anyway, we could go on about that. I won't. Um, but I, some, I think some of this stuff is very exciting and, and interesting, and I, uh, in my humble opinion, and I hope you will too. Um, so let's think about the historical details. What, what can we say about John? It is certainly the case that John uh, was the latest, one of the latest of the New Testament books to be written. It's certainly the last of the four Gospels to be written. I don't think people would dispute that. Um, but it is not the case that he is unhistorical and not interested in history. And it's almost certain that he knew the other three gospels. And so where he's doing things differently, you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he's writing things differently, knowing what he knows about the other gospels, and not wanting to contradict, but wanting to compliment. And I think when we approach it like that, we do see that it is complementary. So if there are differences, it's not because he is being deliberately contradictory or ignorant. We've got to give him the benefit of the doubt. He was not a moron. It's amazing how often people assume people living in past centuries are morons. C.S. Lewis used to call that chronological snobbery. The assumption that our age is the first age to have really sorted it, our generation, and that previous generations were thick. Well, very often it's the other way around. (laughs) Um, Let me give you one or two good examples of this where we know that actually what he records is in fact early. He's writing late, so towards the end of the first century. Uh, I'm not going to fuss around too much about exactly when. I don't think it matters. But um, we know that he's late, and yet there are a number of things we find in John that we know are early. If we take Jesus' death to be around 3033, and we take Paul's death to be the late 60s, um, thereabouts... Um, and uh, I would think that Mark's gospel was probably written before about seventy. And you f- where you find similarities with Mark and John, you're talking about things that are very early, okay, within living memory of Jesus' life, okay. And John's theology is much earlier than people give him credit for. And this is one of my favourites. It's called the Johannine Thunderbolt. Um, in scholarly circles. The Johannine Thunderbolt. Is it going to appear? Here we are. There we are. The Johannine Thunderbolt. This is in Matthew's Gospel. Just turn to Matthew 11, would you? Um, I've got more um, booklets somewhere. There are a few booklets here. What page are we on on the booklets? Just so. His theology is... What I mean is that there is evidence to suggest that it was not created, say, in the 80s or 90s, but that actually he is drawing on what people were saying uh, five decades before, okay? which is a way of demonstrating he is more historical. So, because some people accuse John of being innovative in theology. So, all this stuff about the I am's, because you don't find that elsewhere, people sometimes accuse John of being late, all right? And the later he is, the more likely it becomes, so they say, that Jesus did not say it. But if you can find examples where John's theology is found in early documents, then that is encouraging, And the uh, the Johannine thunderbolt is a good example. In Matthew 11, um, uh, Matthew and Mark used a common source that is widely agreed. They had a common source of sayings of Jesus. That's why there are some similarities between Matthew and Luke. They didn't necessarily know about each other, but they were using maybe somebody who kept an anthology, you know, like a quotes book of Jesus' sayings. And sometimes you find Matthew and Luke are using that same quotes book. So some of the quotes of Jesus you find in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark, probably come from that same quotes book. Do you see what I mean? That's the the argument. Well, Matthew and Luke use this source, and you find the same thing in Matthew 11. Okay, just listen to this and tell me what you think it sounds like. At, the time, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, it's called the Johannine Thunderbolt because suddenly in the middle of Matthew's gospel, you have a saying that sounds as if it could be completely lifted from John. Do you see what I mean? It sounds just like the sort of thing Jesus in John's gospel would say. So it's called the Johannine Thunderbolt, Johannine from John. The Johannine Thunderbolt, suddenly in the middle of Matthew, you have this. And that is datable to around A.D. 50 for a number of reasons I won't bore you with. So we're talking within 20 years of Jesus' crucifixion, there is a record of this saying, all right? And it's very similar to a lot of John's theology. Now, of course, you could say John expands on it much more, for whatever reason Matthew decided not to, but but John expands on it much more, and it has the key features that you find in John, you know, father and son knowing and revealing themselves to their followers and, and all this sort of stuff. So when you see that in John, you've got to know it's not necessarily, in fact it isn't, unique to John. Do you see see the argument? Do do stop me if I'm sort of being a bit too obscure and academic, but I think this is very significant. So you find in an unlikely place an example of John's theology not being unique. And that's important because it shows that he was not making this up. But what is certainly the case is that he was expanding much more than the others do. Yeah? No, that's certainly the case. In fact, Luke says that, doesn't he? Luke chapter 1. Many others have uh, you know, drawn up an account. He's done his research. He's read the other accounts. He's been to the places. I would understand with Luke because he. Matthew and John. Yep. Yep. Well, if you think about it, even people, you know, Tony Blair has been writing his autobiography, hasn't he? Heaven help us. Um, And, um, you know, he will have been doing lots of research on papers of other people. You know, he will know and assume that his memory is not perfect. Even Tony Blair, I assume, will think that his memory is not perfect. And so... In writing an autobiography, say, you will consult lots of other papers. I don't, I don't think that's any contradiction to an eyewitness wanting to verify, wanting to get other perspectives, blah, blah, blah. So even Matthew and Luke using the same source, not a problem. In fact, I'm encouraged by that, because I'd be more suspicious of them if they just relied on their memories. All right? What about um, John's relationship with Jesus, eh? Yes. Yep. The does that yep. Mhm. So, mhm. So the question is about Jesus and John's unique relationship, apparently, and how that affects the historicity. I'm going to come back to that. Yep, yeah, it's an important question. Okay. Um, the second thing I want to say under this is that. You know, John is accused of having, you know, the Christ ideas about Jesus far too developed. And the logic goes something like this. It took years for those first Christians to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. To begin with, they didn't really get it. Well, we know that they didn't really get it during Jesus' lifetime. Jesus kept rebuking them, didn't he? Um, but it took it took years, even decades, after Jesus' death and resurrection to actually come to terms with who he was and who he claimed to be and all the rest. And so the theory goes, the more developed the Christology, in other words, the more divine, the more impressive Jesus becomes, the later that theology must be. Do you see the argument? Because the argument is, And it's a classic modernist argument. The argument is that at the time of Jesus, people would never have thought this stuff. It was only, you know, as they were filled with grief after his death that they sort of wanted a rather sort of rosy-tinted, rather sort of sugar-coated view of Jesus much later on. Well, one of the interesting things is that you can find in very early documents in the New Testament a very what's called high Christology, okay, the idea that Jesus really is all these things we've said he is, and that people believe that from the beginning. So what are some of the earliest documents in the New Testament? Well, First Thessalonians, written in around, I don't know, AD 50, something like that, so again, within 20 years of Jesus' death, and uh, 1 Corinthians speaks about his death and, and who he is, and you find some very early Trinitarian statements in First Corinthians, that's early, and Philippians, take Philippians 2, written in the 60s, that famous Christ hymn in Philippians 2, which is one of the closest uh, segments of Christology in the New Testament to John's. And then you think about Colossians 1. You know, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Do you see? And they're early So even if John was writing in the 80s, or even maybe as an incredibly old man in the 90s, you've got people in the 50s and 60s saying these incredible things about Jesus within 20 years. No, John isn't making this up. This is early. So the distinctives of John's prologue that we saw on the first day are not distinctives at all. They're perfectly consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Do you see the point? Yep, yep. Now, what would you say is the most famous ethical teaching of Jesus? What's what's the most striking um, summary, if you like, of Jesus' ethical teaching? Sermon on the Mount? the Mount? (laughs) The The Golden Rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, basically, that is, you know, you know how sometimes they do those sort of, um, you know, sort of top 10 most influential thinkers in human history. And Jesus is always in there. And the thing they always pick out is, love your neighbor as yourself. Um and I think they're right to pick that out. I mean, I think that was a pretty radical thing. And, uh, and as well as the implications of that in all kinds of ways, isn't it? You know, um, you know if, if someone strikes you on, on your cheek, you know, a Roman soldier who's your oppressor, turn the other cheek so he can strike that too. That's quite radical, isn't it, to an oppressed nation? Well, in John 13 and John 15, Jesus says this, This is my command... Love each other. This is my command, love each other. Now you look in the other gospels and you look in Paul's letters and I've given you a few cross references and you will find that that centrality is in all of them. All of them make it very clear that Jesus' ethical command is to love. Love at great personal cost, sacrificial love. And there's some examples to look up in Mark 9 and 1 Thessalonians and Romans 12. We're to love Christian brothers and sisters, sacrificially. And then fascinatingly, in Galatians 6 and 1 Thessalonians 5, love outsiders. So don't just restrict your love to insiders, love the outsiders as well. And then just turn to Galatians quickly, would you? And if you're first one using one of the chapel Bibles, just shout out the page. Galatians chapter six. H- how many? <laughs> uh, I didn't. One one eight six. Thank you very much. <laughs> Galatians chapter six. Okay, this is a relatively early letter as well relatively speaking with Pauls now look at this verse chapter 6 verse 2 this is a very interesting sentence carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ now what is that law why does he why does Paul use the phrase law of Christ a rather strange phrase, especially after the whole letter of Galatians is teasing through the problems of the law and the believer, and how you're justified, apart from the law, and yet obey the law of Christ. Why does he use that phrase, do you think? Well, it makes perfect sense if Paul knew some of the sources that John had, maybe from John himself. um, Tradition has it that uh, John ended up in Ephesus. Well, maybe Paul got to know him there. And um, it makes perfect sense that if Paul knew some of Jesus' teaching that John records, why not put it in terms of the law of Christ? Remember John 13? This is my command. Love each other. Galatians 6 and John 13 are saying identical things. Do you see? So you find an essential element of John's theology and ethics are found elsewhere and early. So even if John is writing late, that's not a problem because you find plenty of people saying pretty much the same things, maybe slightly different words, with a different angle perhaps, but the essence, essentially the same things early. So we can trust what John's saying. Here, one or two nice things, a few historical things. John is more historical than some claim. There's a lot of archaeological reinforcement. So in John 5, remember the the healing at the Pool of Bethesda? And uh, John clearly gets his facts right, even though he's been accused for generations of getting them wrong. So, for instance, in John 5... Back to John now. John 5 very odd verse. Now, you're just reading this and you would completely miss it because you think this is an unimportant detail. And in a sense, it is an unimportant detail. It has no bearing on the story as such. But verse two, now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five coloured covered colonnades. Now, why is that significant? Well, for generations of more skeptical commentators, they've jumped on this and said, this is absolutely ridiculous. This is evidence that Paul doesn't know, uh, that John doesn't know what he's talking about because there is no evidence of anywhere with five porticos. Uh, five colonnades, sorry. You just don't get it because if you think about it, in the classical world, everything was in sort of squares and oblongs and, and uh, right angles. If you have five colonnades, then you can't have right angles. You know, it's the classic image of a Greek temple, isn't it? Everything's at right angles. Well, lo and behold, in the 1930s, this precise area in Jerusalem was dug up and they discovered a pool in exactly where it should be and it was surrounded by five porticos, five colonnades. Well, fancy that. Now, John isn't telling us that because he wants to prove his historicity. (laughs) He's telling us that because this is an interesting detail, presumably, from an eyewitness account. Maybe he noticed, this is odd, this has got five colonnades. That's odd. Do you see a tiny little passing reference to something that is completely trivial, and yet, on that tiny detail, he's been discovered to have been absolutely right. But before the 1930s, no one believed it. Again and again you find this with the New Testament, again and again, and yet people do not give the writers the benefit of the doubt. They assume that we, living in the 21st century, know better what it's like to live in the first century than those who did live in the first century, which is slightly illogical when you think about it. And then the historical context for Jesus' ministry is correct in a number of ways. We know quite a lot about the first century from Jewish historians as well as Christian as well as Roman historians. Actually, it's one of the most, in the ancient world, the the first century AD is one of the best known about and understood centuries, probably in the ancient period, Uh, because there are all kinds of different witnesses, as well as archaeological stuff and everything else. And we know that this period was full of turmoil and political uh, tensions, because, of course, in 70 AD, the Romans would destroy the Jewish temple as a reprisal so, these tensions have been sort of simmering for decades. And the one thing the Romans were desperate to avoid was an uprising. It's the classic colonial mentality keep the people at bay. The British did it, and the Romans did it. In fact, the British Empire was strongly modelled on the Roman Empire. That's why everyone in this country did classics at university. It's a jolly good degree if you want to run an empire, but unfortunately, I'm a bit late. And in the first century, there were a lot of revolutionaries around, a lot of zealots claiming that they're the ones who are going to lead the people to be the Messiah, to be the king, to kick and boot out the Romans. So when in John John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, the people come along and say they would like to try and make Jesus king, that is exactly the sort of thing they would do. That fits perfectly with what we know about this period. Just a little detail again but we can trust John's historicity. Another one is that John visits Jerusalem regularly. Uh, Sorry, Jesus visits Jerusalem regularly. In fact, he goes for festivals and feasts in Jerusalem. Whereas actually in the other Gospels, it's a bit odder when you think about it. It's very odd that Jesus would only visit Jerusalem at the end of his life. It's more likely that he would do what faithful jewish pilgrims would do visit regularly as he does in john's gospel now matthew and mark and luke clearly are missing those visits out because they don't fit the theological purpose of taking us on the road to the cross do you see so i don't have a problem with that they're just leaving it out but it makes much more sense that jesus visited jerusalem more than once during his ministry don't you think And then, this is interesting, there is correspondence with the, um, um, the synoptics. There are not many miracles that John has in common with the others. In fact, well, obviously, because John only has seven or eight. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? I don't know whether you notice noticed this, but the only time where you have identical chronology, in other words, identical order of events, other than the cross leading to the resurrection, the only time is when you have the feeding of the 5,000 followed by the walking on water. And you find that in exactly the same order in um, John, Matthew, and Mark. Luke doesn't have it. But isn't it interesting that these foundational Exodus miracles are central to those three Gospels in this way, in the same order, with the same significance All three gospel writers, John, as well as Matthew and Mark, bring out the Passover significance of it. That is no accident. And uh, he was a different kind of king, which is one of the reasons Jesus slipped away at the end of John 6. He was not a political revolutionary, although he had revolutionary things to say about politics. His kingdom was not of this world. Okay, well, let me just finish with just one or two of the other puzzles, and then we'll have a bit of time for questions. I'm sorry this is a bit of a gabble, but I hope you're finding some of this uh, exciting and encouraging. Um, one of the odd things in John, I don't know the way you notice this, but in John, Jesus doesn't get baptized, but there's a time, there's a period when he's sharing the load of baptisms with John the Baptist. You notice that? So look back to John uh, 3 and verse 22 after this Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized now also John, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water so it's interesting isn't it this is before John was put in prison they're both doing this together but actually, that makes kind of sense, doesn't it? Uh, presumably, the other gospel writers have not included that because they don't want Jesus and John to appear at the same, sort of, same level. They're very concerned to, um, to, to, put, um, to put Jesus on a higher plane. But uh, but uh, John doesn't worry about that because he's made it quite clear that Jesus is right at the top from the very beginning. So there's going to be no confusion. And John the Baptist has already said, "Look, I'm 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 much more inferior than, than um, the one who's going to come," and uh, and so you know there's no there's no doubt. But you know this actually makes more historical sense. Or uh, uh, we'll talk about uh, Jesus being recognised as the Christ early. Well, again, I think probably what is more likely because people were talking about the Messiah for generations waiting for the Messiah, it's much more likely people were thinking, hey, Jesus might be the one at the beginning. Much more likely. It's just that when Mark and Matthew want to write their gospel accounts, they want to make it clear that this was a turning point because immediately after that, Jesus talks about his death. Do you see? But before that, they were probably, I'm sure the word Christ or Messiah was on their lips. It's much more likely that what you have in John 1 was what happened. But the thing about Mark 8 and Peter's confession of the Christ is that suddenly things slotted into place in a new way. It was a breakthrough, not a beginning. Do you see what I mean? And then what about the eyewitness the beloved disciple that the question that Catherine raised earlier who was the disciple that John that Jesus loved the traditional view is that it was John himself and um, uh, basically people question that especially if they want to say John's gospel is written late in fact, you'll find that there is a liberal theology agenda with John's gospel to push it as late as possible, even into the 100s, because as soon as you do that, it's impossible for it to have been written by John, because he would have been dead. Do you see? Let's suppose, I don't know, maybe he was even 20 around the time of Jesus' ministry, or maybe in his late 20s, maybe 30. Basically, by the time you get to 100, he would have been 100 years old. So it's highly unlikely he would have lived. In fact, it's impossible he would have lived into the second century. So you'll find that theologians sometimes want to push the dating of John late into the second century in order to prevent it being the apostle who wrote it. All right? But back in the prologue, John claims that Jesus dwelled among us, not just humanly in a sense, but perhaps among us, not just humanity rather, us, but us, his friends. And we've seen his glory with our own eyes. And one of the big concerns, and we already saw this a bit this morning, one of the big concerns through John is being a good witness. Telling it how it is. Telling what you've seen. And at the very end of the book, John says in chapter 21, that is precisely what he is. I'm telling you what I've seen. And the next generation of believers after John, so the sort of the first generation of the new converts who weren't alive with Jesus, they certainly assumed it was John the Apostle. So Bishop of Irenaeus of Lyon in France was writing in in the second century, okay, so the hundreds AD. He wrote this and, and spoke about John. Here's Irenaeus or sort of, yeah. It's not exactly a likeness, but then who knows what he looked like. Um, He said of John, finally, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also lain on the breast of the the Lord, himself published the gospel while he was residing at Ephesus. Okay, so in the early hundreds, Irenaeus is talking about John, the writer of the gospel, who had lain on Jesus' breast and who lived at Ephesus. And he is said by the historian Eusebius to have got his information from Polycarp of Smyrna what a great name Polycarp of Smyrna and Polycarp of Smyrna knew all the apostles okay so he was he he knew the apostles and he knew Irenaeus who was in the next generation and Polycarp told him that John was the one who wrote the gospel and he knew that because he knew John himself he was a mate All right, so the early church certainly said that he was the one Jesus loved. And this explains all kinds of things. It explains, for instance, why John is never named in the gospel, and nor is James, his brother. They're only referred to in John 21 as the sons of Zebedee. How odd not to mention the name of such a significant apostle. And then John also seems to have been an associate of Peter, and that's why you have him running to the tomb with Peter, calling himself the disciple Jesus loved. Now, that may seem really arrogant to call yourself the disciple Jesus loved, unless it's just a simple fact. And in a way, it's a way of hiding himself from uh, drawing attention by not using his name. And John's Greek, of course, is not very sophisticated and not very sort of classical, and, and it's actually quite easy Greek. And so that fits with the fact that he was not necessarily a highly educated man. He was from a fishing family. But of course, fishing families in those days could uh, be quite wealthy. They could own a number of boats, and they could have servants. And you can find in Mark chapter 1, that's exactly the case. They had servants. And even if you hadn't gone to university in Jerusalem or wherever it was, Uh, John, uh, it's highly possible for a a, a wealthy fisherman to be well-educated and to know enough Greek to write good Greek but not brilliant Greek. And what's more, he has spent three years with Jesus himself, which is the greatest education you could ever have. So I'm pretty convinced that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved and the writer of this gospel, as well as the letters and the book of Revelation, but that's a whole other story. Finally, let me just deal with the Passover. Lots of ink has been spilt over this and when Jesus celebrated the Passover. I don't think there's anything to worry about here. Mark has it, uh, you know, the, the synoptics have it uh, uh, while they're having the feast on, on the Thursday and um, John has it uh, over the weekend. Well, big deal. Think about it, I think the way to think about this is to think about how we use the word Christmas. Um, Technically, Christmas is the 25th of December. You know that, I know that. That's when Christmas is. But we can say, look, my parents are coming to stay for Christmas. We don't mean they're just coming for one day necessarily. In fact, they could be staying for a whole week. In fact, we talk about that period, the Christmas period, and we all talk about the whole thing as Christmas. That's how we talk about festivals, or Easter. We do exactly the same, don't we? and it's highly possible that they would talk about the passover like this that the passover actually was a number of different festivities a number of different uh, events and feasts and so on and it went on for a whole week and of course because the passover moved day of the week it would fall on different days and occasionally every few years the passover would fall on the sabbath on the saturday all right because Um, The Sabbath is always a Saturday, but the Passover is um, determined by a slightly different calendar, just like Christmas is. Christmas can be any day of the week, do you see? And uh, it's very interesting that John describes that Sabbath as a special Sabbath, because presumably the Passover happened that day, all right? But you would have had a number of feasts during the week to celebrate this Passover, So, in a sense, there's no contradiction at all. It's highly plausible that different families, for all kinds of different reasons, were celebrating and having feasts, maybe two or three feasts that week, and going through the Passover story, and going through this ritual around it. It's also possible that different Jewish groups had different calendars, just as different Christian groups had different calendars. The Orthodox world celebrates Christmas and Easter at different points. Big deal. And it's certainly true of Judaism. Or perhaps Jesus celebrated the meal on the Thursday night because he knew he was going to die the next day. So he said, well, we'll celebrate it tonight. Do you see? It doesn't matter, actually. Um, Because it's all happening at a time when all kinds of different festivities and events were taking place. So I don't think it's a big deal. Well, let me finish. What is John? Well, what John is doing is he is writing... sermon we've seen that in the spiral he's presenting to us signs that he's witnessed and that others have witnessed that point to the fact that the Christ is Jesus and that therefore you must believe in him trust in him if you want to have life in his name that's the spiral of John's gospel we come to it again and again and John is a preacher of that message but he's an historian preacher He's concerned for these events. He knows they happened. He saw them. And he wants us to know that they happened. This is not wishful thinking. This is not sort of weird, um, you know, sort of dreaming up ideas and and, and just sort of a few idle imaginations flung together. This is an eyewitness account of what actually happened. And this is important because he expects us as his readers, to be equally diligent in being Christ's witnesses. So I hope that this has been helpful to, to uh, sort of bolster your witness to the truths of John. There are plenty of other things to say. Maybe there's some things that were irrelevant to you or didn't catch your imagination, whatever. It doesn't matter. But hopefully there's been a bit of ammunition and armory there to, to bolster your confidence in the reality of what we find in John Good, well, let's have uh, just 10 minutes of questions or so, and then we'll go for supper. Um, why were the Gospels written so late? I was going all the letters were earlier, because it was a letter that he was writing to the church. Yep, than yep. Um, <clears throat> it's more, I think, a question of why are the, one, the Gospels that we have written later, many people wrote Gospels, many people wrote accounts, we know that, no idea how many, but we know that other people were writing accounts and telling the stories and so on, and it was being filtered out in all kinds of different ways, Um, as Luke says quite clearly at the beginning of his Gospel. Um, I think, you know, one thought is that people were expecting Jesus to come back soon, and that's why they didn't think they needed to. I don't believe that, actually. I think they were, they were concerned to get the gospel out to the whole world. Soon, quickly, as much you know, with urgency. But I don't think that would be a legitimate reason for not writing these things down. Because I think it would have been all the more important to make sure, as it's being sort of passed on, instead of having sort of Chinese whispers where it gets changed at every sort of um, stage, they want to have an account that gets passed along. And it's amazing how quickly these uh, 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 copies of the gospel accounts get spread right around the Mediterranean. And that's one of the most exciting things about sort of early manuscript studies. You can compare them and find that, you know, a fragment found in Avignon is the same substantially document as a fragment found in Alexandria and, you know, sort of the Turkish border with Iran. Uh, this, is, this is a fact. This is, you know, it, it, it's happening. It's getting out there. So I, I just... I I, I don't really know it's in the providence of God we got these four I'm jolly glad we got these four we could have had many others incidentally there are a number of others written much later that were nothing to do with the early church like the gospel of Thomas is absolute baloney and was written hundreds, you know, decades later and that is, that is that, that's complete rubbish if you read it you'll, you, can, you, know, you can buy it if you want you can read it and it's absolute cod's wallop okay yeah paper Yeah: no, well, they do it with all of them, actually. They do it with all of them. Um, but John they very often John is almost like a soft target. Um, you know, if you want to do a demolition job, the place to start is John, on the surface. I hope I've indicated that that's not necessarily true, but um, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Who's this we? Yep. Right at the... um, Yeah, I should have mentioned this, actually. Yeah, repeat the question. Um, the, the, The question is from John 21, verse 24... This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Who is this mysterious we? Um, There are a number of books. There's a book, a very famous book that was written called The Community of the Beloved Disciple. The beloved disciple we've talked about is John and that there was obviously a church that had grown up under his leadership. Maybe it was Ephesus. And that there was a community of elders and believers around him who maybe helped him compile it. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about a man in his 80s, if not 90s, um, you know, without modern sort of medical technology, technology and, and, and support. So, you know, it's highly plausible that he had a number of people around him to help him write, as we know that Paul did. So you remember the Galatians, you know, he says, see what big writing I've got. <laughs> Um, he had a secretary who he dictated all his letters to. So we know that. It's not a problem. And I think basically that's exactly the same thing here. Now, a number of books have sort of extrapolated from this a whole theory of how this gospel came about. That actually, it was a church that was founded by John but they decided long after he died that they needed to have something to sort of memorialize him by and to meet Rand, and they write this gospel. That's one theory, and they push that into the second century. So it's not written by John at all, just by the community around him. Um, I just don't think that is uh, necessary at all. Uh, but it's certainly the case. Like, in fact, all the early d- uh, apostles would have. you know They had merry bands around them. Um, so I think this is John's merry band. Yeah, any other questions? I saw a hand floating, but it's floated off. Yeah. What's the big deal about red-letter Bibles? I have a big problem with red-letter Bibles, because what is the implication? The implication is that the words of Jesus are more important than the rest of it. Um, Well, putting it in in quotation marks is simply saying, this is Jesus talking, in the same way that when Nicodemus is talking, you put that in quotation marks. Do you see what I mean? So it's it's how we, in English, I mean, all languages have different ways of identifying speech, but in English, that's how we identify speech. The problem with red letter is is that basically the red letters ping out of you, ping out of the page at you when you see them, and your eye is drawn to them, and it stops you actually sort of you know subconsciously thinking about the context, and it stops you seeing that this is all the word of God. So even if John three sixteen is written by John not Jesus, it is still as authoritative and important and revealed as John 3, 15. So actually that's why I don't have a problem where the um, inverted commas go at all. If it was Jesus saying, fine. If it was John saying, fine. It makes no difference at all. Um, And I actually think that red letter, I've read a study about, um, you know, a psychological study on the effect of different colors in print. Um, I can't remember the details, it was ages ago, but, but basically um, there was, it was significantly harder to read words printed in red than it is to read words printed in black. Don't ask me why, it just is. So actually, not only is it untheological, it's also unhelpful. Have I made my point clear? <laughs> yeah, sure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. The question is John 3.11. We speak of what we know. We testify. I have spoken to you of earthly things. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Well, I think it's clear that um, Jesus... And the Spirit both testify to what the Father tells them to speak. So I think this is Trinitarian language. Okay. It does, indeed. Yep. There is def- it is definitely the case that there is a plurality within God in the Old Testament. God is plural, but one in the Old Testament. I don't think the whole Trinity is revealed in the Old Testament. I don't think all the pieces of the puzzle are there yet. But it is definitely the case that God is a complex unity in the Old Testament. And that's, I would say, why you have we. Well, Elohim yeah. is a plural noun. But um, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting, fun things going on. I mean, let us make man in our image is quite interesting, isn't it? One more question? Yeah. Um, wasn't Jesus supposed to be in the grave three days and three nights Wasn't Jesus supposed to be in the grave three days and three nights, as opposed to oh, the, sign the sign of Jonah? Yes? Well, the thing is, it depends how you count. If you count inclusively, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is three days. If you count by hours, it's not. If you count in terms of 24-hour periods, it just depends how you count. No, we know, we know from John that it has to, Is the day before, it's the day of preparation before the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. So for, well, it, it, it must be the Saturday. So Jesus was crucified on the Friday. Um, that is absolutely, um, you know, accepted. Um, and that's why it's called the day of preparation before. Right. Yeah. 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 It's just a different way of counting. And, and, and that's absolutely right. That's how the Bible counts. Folks, you've been very patient after a long day. Thank you very much. Um, Hugh is in here at 7.15. And I'm sure you will give him a big cornerstone welcome. I hope he's here. I don't even know if he's arrived yet, but anyway. Okay, good. Thanks everybody.